My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Cassie Holmes is an award-winning marketing professor at UCLA and the best-selling author of Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time, and Focus on What Matters Most. Her book was called A Must Read by Forbes, The Washington Post, and The Financial Times, and was featured on The Today Show, CBS Mornings, CNN, NPR's Hidden Brain, and Goop with Gwyneth Paltrow. Cassie's research has been published in leading academic journals, and the course she developed, Applying the Science of Happiness to Life Design, is among UCLA's most popular MBA classes. Prior to joining UCLA, Cassie was a professor at Wharton. She has a PhD from Stanford's Graduate School of Business and a BA from Columbia. I hope you enjoy learning from Cassie Holmes today, because I certainly did. Cassie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You research one of the most relevant topics for all of us, so I really look forward to our discussion. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Nate. This will be fun. So Cassie, what lessons have you learned about time and happiness that you would most like to pass on to others? Yeah, well, first of all, I would say that The answer is not about how much time you have available or even how much time you spend on any of your particular activities that contribute to happiness. It's really how you spend that time, both on activities that are worthwhile as well as when you're spending that time being fully invested and engaged. And this, I think, is really important because it's what motivated me and my research agenda and really motivated me to write the book because earlier in my career, when I had um, just had my first baby, (laughs) um, there was, I I remember really vividly, and I share this story to open the book, um, I had traveled up, I was an assistant professor at Wharton at the time, and I traveled up to New York to give a talk, and my talk was sandwiched between these back-to-back meetings, and then I'm rushing to the dinner and then rushing to the train station to catch the last train that would get me home to my four-month-old and my husband asleep in Philly. And I did make the train, but I remember sitting there, you know, watching the nightlights whiz by and I was like, I don't know if I can keep up between the pressures of work, wanting to be a good partner, a good parent, a good friend, the never-ending pile of chores. It just felt like there was too much to do and not enough time in the day to do it. And that feeling of time poverty, this acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it, it's really aversive. And in my moment of feeling extremely time poor, I was like, oh my gosh, I think I should just quit, you know, quit my job that I worked so hard for and I actually really loved because I didn't think it was feasible. But I didn't, and I'm glad that I didn't because I've since done research that shows that the answer for having greater happiness is not having more time. Um, With some of my collaborators, Hal Hirschfield and Marissa Shreve, we looked at what's the relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have and their happiness. And across data sets, including an analysis of hundreds of thousands of working and non-working Americans, Um, how they spend their regular days, we saw this consistent pattern of results, which was an upside down U-shape, which is important because what that shows is that happiness goes down on both ends of the spectrum. 
yes, people with too little time are less happy and that's because they feel heightened levels of stress. But on the other side of the spectrum, people with too much time were also less happy. And the reason for that is because research shows that we are averse to being idle. So we do want to be somewhat productive. And so when we spend all the hours of the day with nothing to show for it, it undermines sense of productivity. And I think this is really important because it warns us, it cautions us in those hectic days where we are feeling so time poor. The answer isn't to quit everything, right? And also there's a pretty, pretty wide range. And so the American Time Use Survey data, for instance, between two and five hours of discretionary hours in the day where the relationship is flat. So that means that it's not about how much time you have available. It's really how you invest the time you have available. So the takeaway from that is it's not about the amount of time you have. It's, it's not about being time rich, but we need to figure out how to make our time rich. And it's that that has driven and motivated my research agenda since to figure out, okay, well, how do we invest our hours so that our days are fulfilling? So that at the end of the week, even though our schedule might be full, uh, we feel fulfilled, you know, so that at the end of our lives, we can look back without regret and that it didn't all pass us by in that blur that I was sort of feeling and watching and experiencing on the train that night. Really interesting story and research. And every so often early on in my career, I would wake up and literally have nothing on my calendar. And it caused me so much anxiety. And yeah. I realized what I needed to do was every night when I finished work, I needed to at least make sure I had a plan for the next day. Cause I hated that feeling of waking up and feeling like I just had all this time. Uh, so I can, I can appreciate having that, that feeling of, of too much time. Uh, but also on the other end of the spectrum, like you talked about this, uh, U shape, um, how do people reduce the feeling of time poverty? What can you do? Um, there are a few things. And actually what's interesting is that there is important to note that first of all, time poverty is the acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And that's really important because it's a subjective sense. We okay. all have 24 hours in a day. Uh, we all should be sleeping at least seven to eight of them, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then yes, there are different demands on our time, but even controlling those demands constant, there's variation in terms of how time poor we feel. Um, and the sort of inputs into what influences how time poor we feel, how time pressure. One is our expectations of like, what is that list or on that list of what we should be doing? right? Um, and we have more control over what gets onto that list than we think. Um, and uh, there's also these other sort of external factors that influence these sort of general expectations of ourselves. Um, uh, I would say as a 
not fully tested hypothesis, but we have some initial evidence to support this, that social media <laughs> and mm -hmm. technology, actually, our phones that help us get so much done and are constantly with us, they shift our expectations of how much we should be getting done, how much we could mm -hmm. be getting done. And by that sort of subjective list or these sets of expectations growing and the time we have available, not that has an effect. So being um, proactive and intentional about and making sure your expectations are self-generated and not sort of nebulously externally gener generated in terms of what you set out to do. Also, it's influenced by our confidence in being able to achieve what we set out to do. And that confidence is influenced by our sense of energy. It's influenced by our sense of self-efficacy. And so we have some interesting work actually when people feel time poor, one of the things that they give up is slowing down to help others out or spending time to help others. Um, yet, we have um, research that shows that when people actually do spend some time to help another, it makes them feel like they have more time. And it's like, mm. how could that be? And it's driven by an increased sense of self-efficacy. So when you have spent time to help someone, you're like, oh my gosh, I accomplished so much. And that sense of accomplishing more influences your sense of how much you can accomplish. So spending on activities that are energizing and make you feel good about yourself in full and protecting time for them can actually increase your sense of time affluence. So I think that is really interesting, uh, particularly for one reason. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in a, in a discussion and we were setting some goals. And my goal was to not try to be so efficient that, you know, because so what I do is I know exactly how long it takes me to get to work. And so I leave at the exact time so that I get to work and, and I get to the classroom at the exact time and I, I get to lunch at the exact time. And my goal was to add some buffer because what would happen is uh, as happens, you run into somebody that you want to talk to, can't yeah. talk to them. And now I am feeling subjectively time poor, but also objectively time poor. And so I think this is so interesting that by slowing down, by not scheduling myself so tight, adding some buffer, I'm being quote unquote less productive, but now I will increase my ability to slow down and help others feel good about the way I'm spending my time and then also reduce that feeling of time poverty. Yeah, um, which is which is a really and it's a really important point, and that is absolutely the point, right? Is figuring out what are those activities that are worth your time. And it's interesting because um, my work and the book uh, has sort of been framed as time management. And traditionally, time management is all about how do you spend your time to be as efficient as possible yeah. and to be as productive as possible with productivity being sort of construed as how much, how many things can you get done as quickly as possible. But that is not 
what the goal should be in terms of our temporal investments. It's not about getting things done as quickly as possible. It's not about checking items off of our list. I think it's really important that people flip it and are thinking, okay, how do I spend my time on what's worthwhile? And sometimes those worthwhile things aren't sort of don't fall in the productivity bucket. It falls mm -hmm. in the slowing down and having a nice conversation with a colleague, you know, yeah. in the morning. Um, and uh, it's not about uh, sort of getting through particularly these worthwhile tasks as quickly as possible. And, um, and you look at that in the work domain too, right? It's the best outcomes aren't and actually in some cases are inversely related to the speed by which you do them mm -hmm. right and so being intentional about carving out protecting the time for what matters um and and then in in my work and in the book um and in the exercises in the book um it helps people identify for themselves what are those ways of spending that matter to you, because what matters to you, while there are some commonalities that we see across individuals um, from the research, um, there are also a lot of differences. And so I encourage folks to track their time over a course of a week and write down what they're doing, but as importantly, not just write down what they're doing, but rate on a 10 point scale, how did they feel coming out of that activity? So you can see for yourself with your own data, what are those activities that were more, most satisfying? And also you can see across your most satisfying and fulfilling activities, what are some commonalities across them? And that actually can be very illuminating of what are some of these sources of joy and it's worth spending the time on them it's worth investing that time, even though at the face of it, it might not seem productive. It's absolutely worthwhile and spending to give you that energy and sense of fulfillment um, then translates into making you better in all your other domains. So ultimately, um, my argument is that it does make you more productive. Yeah. And it's also a more sustainable productivity because you don't get that burnout, right? That in fact, you're like, again, you know, as I was saying before, my goal in some of my work is to identify how do we spend our time so that it feels fulfilling, not just making our schedules full. And I love this idea of collecting data on ourselves so that we can really fine tune, uh, you know, how we spend our time to help us. Okay, before we wrap up, can I just ask one last question? Sure. If, if we want to improve our happiness, why should we take our grandma to lunch? <laughs> it's, well, one is social connection, but another is because while we are making these choices, sort of projecting into how do we live a good life that's a, you know satisfying and makes us feel proud and not regret, there are individuals in our lives who are towards the end of it and have a lot of perspective. And as we ask them to look back, having lived a good life, what are, ask them, what's their source of pride? What's their source of regret? Um, and that 
perspective and that knowledge and wisdom can then inform how we spend our hours today so that we make decisions and we invest our hours so that we can look back feeling satisfaction and not feeling regret. Well, what a great perspective and so many good ideas, interesting research. Cassie, I just want to thank you for spending your limited time with me today and sharing these excellent lessons to help us be more happy. Well, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. What great research Cassie shared today. First, happiness isn't determined by how much free time we have available. Rather, it's determined by how we spend the time we have. Looking at the data from hundreds of thousands of working and non-working Americans shows that people with too little time were just as unhappy as people with too much time. But the key to happiness is using our time in meaningful ways. In other words, happiness isn't about being time rich, it's about making our time rich. It's a simple idea, please take it seriously. Nate Mickle here with a couple requests. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review on your podcast player. Lastly, if you're like me and want to remember all of the lessons shared in previous episodes, visit the list of lessons page on my website, natemickle.com, to see all of the lessons that each previous guest has shared. Thanks for your support.